Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. We're excited to announce the next addition to our Behind the Knife premium offerings, the Complex General Surgical Oncology Oral Board Review. This oral board review course includes 46 scenarios that meticulously cover all the SCORE CGSO topics on the Surgical Oncology Oral Board exam. Each scenario includes two parts. Part A is a perfectly executed oral board scenario that mimics the real thing. Scenarios are five to seven minutes long and include a variety of tactics and styles. If you are able to achieve this level of performance in your preparation, you are sure to pass the oral exam with flying colors. Part B introduces high yield commentary to each scenario. For those of you that used our General Surgery Oral Board Review Series, the format will be very familiar. When you hear this sound, that indicates the start of the high-yield commentary. This commentary includes tips and tricks to help you dominate the most challenging scenarios in addition to practical, easy-to-understand teaching that covers the most confusing topics faced on the surgical oncology exam. Then, when you hear this sound, That indicates we are returning back to the exam scenario. We are confident that you will find this unique dual format approach a highly effective way to prepare for the test. I'm pleased to be joined by the lead editor for the project, Dr. Daniel Nelson. Dan, what led you to want to be involved in this project? Well, thanks, Jason. Yeah, I'd have to say this is a bit of a passion project. First, I've really enjoyed getting to be a part of Behind the Knife, but this really came down to identifying a need. As with many of the specialty boards, there just isn't much out there to help treaties prepare for the surgical oncology boards. So developing this course really came down to being about a lack of cost-effective, high-value board prep courses or materials out there to help with planning for trainees to take the surgical oncology certifying exam. The material you'll be provided was created, edited, and curated for trainees by some of the country's top surgical oncologists. We could not have done it without our amazing contributors, including Dr. Michael Alvarado, Unit Singh, Tim Vreeland, Chris Scally, Aaron Dawes, Mark Ferries, James Wu, Michael Yeh, Christine Nembar, and Jonathan Abelson. All of these individuals have been contributors to Behind the Knife in the past and have a, have a deep passion for, for surgical education. While it is impossible to cover the entire breadth of surgical oncology and predict every iteration of every scenario you may be asked on the complex general surgical oncology boards, we sought to be as comprehensive as possible. We are extremely proud of the content and are confident you will find it to be an indispensable resource for your exam preparation. So don't forget to check out www.behindthenife.org for more high-yield surgical education content. You can also sign up for our newsletter, register for free CME, and even purchase some merchandise. If you enjoyed this example episode, be sure to visit our website, again, behindthenife.org, and navigate to the premium section. There you'll find the remainder of this review, our other oral board audio review content, as well as our companion books. For regular updates, follow us on Twitter, at Behind the Knife, and Instagram, at Behind the Knife Podcast. Thanks for listening. Now go dominate the day. Behind the Knife Premium. Behind the Knife Complex General Surgical Oncology Board Review. Scenario Pancreatic Adenocarcinoma. Developed by Daniel Nelson, read by Daniel Nelson and Jason Bingham. So you're consulted by the Internal Medicine Service on a 63 year old, otherwise healthy male with no remarkable medical or surgical history. 
His wife had recently noticed yellowing of his skin, prompting an ER visit. Laboratory evaluation showed a normal, complete blood count and chemistry, but his total bilirubin was 8 and direct bilirubin was 5. A right upper quadrant ultrasound had been attained and demonstrated a normal peeling gallbladder without stones, but the common bile duct was dilated to 1.5 centimeters. No colodoca lithiasis was noted. How would you like to proceed? Well, in this uh, 63-year-old guy presenting with painless jaundice, I'm immediately concerned for a periampulary tumor causing biliary obstruction. So in addition to, of course, you know, seeing him and performing my own history and physical, I would uh, be pretty quick to obtain a pancreatic uh, protocol CT scan. So your CT demonstrates a 2-centimeter hypodense mass in the head of the pancreas causing dilation of the common bile duct and the pancreatic duct. There are no liver masses, no lymphadenopathy, and no evidence of disease in the abdomen or pelvis. Is there anything else you'd like to know? Well, I'd want to know if there's any involvement or abutment of the vasculature, including the hepatic artery, superior uh, mesenteric artery or vein, and uh, portal vein. If this is a pancreatic adeno, this information will be important for determining its resectability. What would you define as anatomically resectable? So anatomically resectable would be no arterial tumor contact with the celiac axis, common hepatic artery or superior mesenteric artery, and either no tumor contact or less than 180 degree contact without contour irregularity of the superior mesenteric vein or the portal vein. Okay, so on review of the imaging, there does appear to be 180 degree contact with the superior mesenteric vein as well as minimal contact with the superior mesenteric artery. Okay, so at this point, my suspicion is pretty high for a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Uh, it appears to be borderline resectable based on those imaging findings. I would consult uh, gastroenterology for ERCP with stent placement for biliary decompression, and then I would ask the gastroenterologist to obtain brushings and uh, as well as a EUS and FNA biopsy of the mass in hope of obtaining a tissue diagnosis. Once the biliary system has been decompressed, I would want to get tumor marker level for CA199. Do you routinely perform endoscopic biliary decompression? No, no, not routinely. Routine uh, endoscopic biliary stenting is generally not recommended as associated with increased risk of perioperative complications. I would, however, recommend biliary stenting to relieve signs or symptoms of cholangitis or if bilirubin levels were very high, so, you know, greater than 12 to reduce the risk of postoperative uh, cholestatic liver failure. In this case, I would stents because of the consideration for neoadjuvant therapy. Okay, so GI places the stent and his bilirubin levels gradually normalize. Brushings were negative, but the FNA biopsy confirms pancreatic adenocarcinoma. CA199 following normalization of his bilirubin is 120. Okay, well, so uh, at this point, I'd, I need to complete his uh, staging with a CT of the chest. Uh, I would also obtain uh, germline genetic testing and discuss the patient with my institution's uh, multidisciplinary tumor board. So the CT chest is negative for metastatic disease. Germline testing is negative for a pathogenic mutation. How would you like to proceed from here? Okay. So, well, this is a otherwise healthy 63-year-old male with an anatomically borderline resectable pancreatic adenocarcinoma with no findings to suggest occult metastatic disease. I would counsel patient for diagnostic laparoscopy to rule out peritoneal metastatic disease, and if negative, I would proceed with neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery. So diagnostic laparoscopy reveals no evidence of occult metastatic disease. 
your patient receives four cycles of neoadjuvant modified fulfirinax, which he tolerates well. Interval scans demonstrate a decreased size of the tumor, and a clear plane is now noted at the SMV and SMA. CA-19-9 levels have decreased to 38. Can you walk me through the major steps of uh, your operation? Uh, sure. Um, first, I would, again, perform a diagnostic laparoscopy, examining the surface of the liver, peritoneal cavity, and small bowel, and mesentery for any evidence of occult metastatic disease. This is negative, I would proceed with a midline laparotomy. I'd begin by taking uh, the attachments between the greater omentum and the transverse colon entering the lesser sac. I would trace the middle colic vein up to identify the superior mesenteric vein at the inferior border of the pancreas and develop the plane behind the neck of the pancreas and encircle the pancreas with uh, umbilical tape. I would next mobilize the hepatic flexure and perform a complete coker maneuver. This would allow me to palpate the course of the superior mesenteric artery. I perform a cholecystectomy, portal dissection, and division of the common hepatic duct and identification and ligation of the gastroduodenal artery. Next, I would transect the distal stomach and divide the small bowel uh, distal to the LOT, uh, mobilizing the distal uh, duodenum from the mesentery. I would then divide the pancreatic neck and send distal duct margin for frozen section analysis. Finally, I would divide the unsinate process attachments adjacent to the superior mesenteric artery adventitia. Once this resection is complete and my pathologist has confirmed a negative distal margin, I would proceed with reconstruction consisting of a tension-free duct to mucosa, pancreaticojejunostomy, hepaticojejunostomy, and gastrojejunostomy. I would leave closed suction drains near the pancreatic and biliary anastomoses. How would you manage the drains? Well, I would check a drain amylase level on postoperative day one and three uh, to guide my drain management with plans to remove the drain prior to discharge. If the output is less than 30 uh, milliliters a day, amylase levels are within normal limits and the patient exhibits no clinical signs of a pancreatic fistula. So on postoperative day five, the patient experiences nausea with vomiting and abdominal pain. He has not urinated in the last 12 hours. He is febrile to 102 degrees and hypotensive with a blood pressure of 95 over 60. Okay. Well, I'm, I would uh, immediately make a patient MPO. I would go uh, examine the patient. Uh, I'd want to get a full set of labs to evaluate for bleeding, infection, or any uh, electrolyte derangements. If my drains have not been removed, I'd also check the drain character and volume and send for drain amylase levels. Uh, I would ensure the patient has uh, large bore IV access. I would start IV fluid resuscitation and give him a, a one liter uh, bolus of crystalloid. Um, I'd also want to get an x-ray of his abdomen. His blood pressure improves with the one liter bolus. Uh, he remain, remains febrile. Labs show a leukocytosis of 16,000. His hemoglobin is stable at 13. His drain output was 150 cc's over the last 24 hours and is yellow brown in character. Uh, the amylase level is 5,000. X-ray shows a dilated stomach and dilated loops of small bowel consistent with an ileus. Okay, so at this point, I'd be concerned uh, for a pancreatic leak or fistula. I would insert an NG tube and place it to uh, wall suction, low intermittent. I would continue fluid resuscitation and start broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, I would perform a CT scan of the abdomen and ensure that the drains are uh, in the right location and providing adequate drainage. The patient uh, recovers from his pancreatic leak without further intervention and is eventually discharged home. 
Final pathology demonstrates a 2 centimeter pancreatic adenocarcinoma, margin negative, with 2 out of 15 lymph nodes positive for metastases. Does this patient require anything else? I'd want to discuss uh, the patient at our multidisciplinary tumor board. Uh, once recovered from the surgery, I believe an additional two months of adjuvant chemotherapy would be recommended to complete a total of six months of therapy. Uh, I would plan surveillance every three to six months with interval history and physical exam and monitoring of CA199 levels, as well as the CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis for two years. And then I would space that out to every six to 12 months thereafter. Be sure to listen to Part B for high-yield commentary and other tips and tricks. Behind the Knife Premium. Behind the Knife Complex General Surgical Oncology Board Review. Scenario, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Developed by Daniel Nelson, read by Daniel Nelson, and Jason Bingham. So you're consulted by the Internal Medicine Service on a 63-year-old, otherwise healthy male with no remarkable medical or surgical history. His wife had recently noticed yellowing of his skin, prompting an ER visit. Laboratory evaluation showed a normal, complete blood count and chemistry, but his total bilirubin was 8 and direct bilirubin was 5. A right upper quadrant ultrasound had been attained and demonstrated a normal peeling gallbladder without stones, but the common bile duct was dilated to 1.5 centimeters. No colodoca lithiasis was noted. How would you like to proceed? Well, in this uh, 63-year-old guy presenting with painless jaundice, I'm immediately concerned for a periampulary tumor causing biliary obstruction. So in addition to, of course, you know, seeing him and performing my own history and physical, I would uh, be pretty quick to obtain a pancreatic uh, protocol CT scan. Pancreatic protocol CT would be the next imaging study of choice in this scenario. This is a triple phase study with sub-centimeter slices through the pancreas, and images are obtained in the portal venous and pancreatic phases of contrast enhancement. MRI or MRCP may be preferred at some institutions and is a completely reasonable option here as well. Both are very similar sensitivity and specificity for identification of a pancreatic mass. So your CT demonstrates a 2-centimeter hypodense mass in the head of the pancreas causing dilation of the common bile duct and the pancreatic duct. There are no liver masses, no lymphadenopathy, and no evidence of disease in the abdomen or pelvis. Is there anything else you'd like to know? Well, I'd want to know if there's any involvement or abutment of the vasculature, including the hepatic artery, superior uh, mesenteric artery or vein, and uh, portal vein. If this is a pancreatic adeno, this information will be important for determining its resectability. What would you define as anatomically resectable? So anatomically resectable would be no arterial tumor contact with the celiac axis, common hepatic artery or superior mesenteric artery, and either no tumor contact or less than 180 degree contact without contour irregularity of the superior mesenteric vein or the portal vein. For a mass concerning for a pancreatic adenocarcinoma, it is critical to determine anatomic feasibility of resection. Direct arterial involvement is considered a contraindication to upfront surgical resection, as may be the degree of venous involvement depending on options for reconstruction, which must also be carefully considered. Per ASCO guidelines, any patient with a radiographic interface between the primary tumor and mesenteric vascular should be considered for neoadjuvant therapy as these are considered, at minimum, borderline resectable tumors and are at an increased risk for margin-positive resection 
with an upfront surgical approach. Anatomic resectability is just one aspect of determining appropriateness for an upfront surgical approach in the treatment of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. We also need to consider biologic resectability, which is the risk of harboring occult metastatic disease or developing an early recurrence, as well as conditional status of the patient, such as age, fitness, comorbidities, nutritional status, and underlying symptoms. Factors that may help determine biologic resectability may include radiographic findings such as possible metastatic disease, suspicious lymphadenopathy, or extreme elevations of CA199. Okay, so on review of the imaging, there does appear to be 180-degree contact with the superior mesenteric vein, as well as minimal contact with the superior mesenteric artery. Okay, so at this point, my suspicion is pretty high for a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Uh, it appears to be borderline resectable based on those imaging findings. I would consult uh, gastroenterology for ERCP with stent placement for biliary decompression, and I would ask the gastroenterologist to obtain brushings and uh, as well as a EUS and FNA biopsy of the mass in hope of obtaining a tissue diagnosis. Once the biliary system has been decompressed, I would want to get a tumor marker level for CA199. Do you routinely perform endoscopic biliary decompression? No, no, not routinely. Routine uh, endoscopic biliary stenting is generally not recommended as associated with increased risk of perioperative complications. I would, however, recommend biliary stenting to relieve signs or symptoms of cholangitis or if bilirubin levels were very high, so, you know, greater than 12, to reduce the risk of postoperative uh, cholestatic liver failure. In this case, I would stent because of the consideration for neoadjuvant therapy. There are several items to unpack here, but the examinee is making thoughtful decisions. On the one hand, had this patient had anatomically resectable tumor based on imaging, proceeding directly to surgery without a tissue diagnosis or preoperative endoscopic biliary stenting would be considered acceptable. Routine preoperative biliary drainage is not recommended as it has been associated with increased risk of postoperative infections. However, preoperative biliary drainage should be considered in a patient with marked hyperbilirubinemia due to the risk of postoperative cholestatic liver failure. Other cases where preoperative biliary stenting would be indicated would include patients receiving neoadjuvant therapy to relieve signs and symptoms of cholangitis or requiring medical optimization due to malnutrition. In a patient with resectable disease, a tissue diagnosis is not mandatory prior to surgery, but would be in this case where neoadjuvant therapy is being considered. Brushings at the time of ERCP and stem placement may establish a tissue diagnosis, but the sensitivity is low. EUS with FNA biopsy is the best means of obtaining a tissue diagnosis. Obtaining a CA199 level is appropriate and is most informative after decompression of the biliary system and normalization of bilirubin levels. Remember that CA199 has low specificity and can also be falsely elevated in benign cholestatic diseases as well. It also requires the presence of Lewis blood group antigen expression, which is absent in 5-10% to of the population. Okay. So GI places the stent and his bilirubin levels gradually normalize. Brushings were negative, but the FNA biopsy confirms pancreatic adenocarcinoma. CA199 following normalization of his bilirubin is 120. Okay, well, so uh, at this point, I'd, I need to complete his uh, staging with a CT of the chest. Uh, I would also obtain uh, germline genetic testing and discuss the patient with my institution's uh, multidisciplinary tumor board. Don't forget to complete your staging evaluation once a confirmed cancer diagnosis has been established. 
Germline testing is now recommended in the NCCN guidelines for any patient diagnosed with a pancreatic cancer. So the CT chest is negative for metastatic disease. Germline testing is negative for a pathogenic mutation. How would you like to proceed from here? Okay. So, well, this is a otherwise healthy 63-year-old male with an anatomically borderline resectable pancreatic adenocarcinoma with no findings to suggest occult metastatic disease. I would counsel patient for diagnostic laparoscopy to rule out peritoneal metastatic disease, and if negative, I would proceed with neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery. The management of pancreatic adenocarcinoma is evolving quickly. Currently, in a patient with good functional status, an anatomically resectable tumor, and no findings suggestive of metastatic disease, an upfront surgical approach followed by adjuvant chemotherapy is currently considered the standard of care and supported by studies such as SPAC4 and Prodige24. In high-risk patients with resectable disease and certainly borderline resectable disease, neoadjuvant therapy should be considered. Currently, there is limited evidence to recommend specific neoadjuvant regimens off-study, so this would be a good opportunity to suggest enrollment in a clinical trial. Common neoadjuvant regimens include gemcitabine, NAB, paclitaxel, or modified fulfirinox, and subsequent chemoradiation is sometimes included. Your approach is certainly going to be informed by your institution's practices. Just have evidence to support it. It is worthwhile to note that the recent Alliance A021501 trial comparing neoadjuvant-modified fulfirinox with or without hypofractionated radiation demonstrated that the addition of radiation did not improve overall survival. Although diagnostic laparoscopy is not mandatory, the NCCN guidelines recommend consideration prior to initiating treatment, whether this is prior to neoadjuvant therapy or prior to definitive surgery, as it may prevent unnecessary laparotomy in up to 23% of patients. So diagnostic laparoscopy reveals no evidence of occult metastatic disease. Your patient receives four cycles of neoadjuvant modified fulfirinax, which he tolerates well. Interval scans demonstrate a decreased size of the tumor, and a clear plane is now noted at the SMV and SMA. CA199 levels have decreased to 38. Can you walk me through the major steps of uh, your operation? Uh, sure. Um, first, I would, again, perform a diagnostic laparoscopy, examining the surface of the liver, peritoneal cavity, and small bowel and mesentery for any evidence of occult metastatic disease. If this is negative, I would proceed with a midline laparotomy. I'd begin by taking uh, the attachments between the greater omentum and the transverse colon entering the lesser sac. I would trace the middle colic vein up to identify the superior mesenteric vein at the inferior border of the pancreas and develop the plane behind the neck of the pancreas and encircle the pancreas with uh, umbilical tape. I would next mobilize the hepatic flexure and perform a complete coker maneuver. This would allow me to palpate the course of the superior mesenteric artery. I perform a cholecystectomy, portal dissection, and division of the common hepatic duct, and identification and ligation of the gastroduodenal artery. Next, I would transect the distal stomach and divide the small bowel uh, distal to the LOT, uh, mobilizing the distal uh, duodenum from the mesentery. I would then divide the pancreatic neck and send distal duct margin for frozen section analysis. Finally, I would divide the uncinate process attachments adjacent to the superior mesenteric artery adventitia. Once this resection is complete and my pathologist has confirmed a negative distal margin, I would proceed with reconstruction consisting of a tension-free duct to mucosa, pancreatico-jejunostomy, hepatico-jejunostomy, and gastro-jejunostomy. 
I would leave closed suction drains near the pancreatic and biliary anastomoses. Lots of ways to approach describing a Whipple procedure. You may be more familiar with one method or another, classic versus pylorus preserving, loop gastrojejunostomy versus Roux-en-Y. The key is to systematically highlight major aspects of the operation, checking for resectability between the neck of the pancreas and portal vein and again at the SMA interface during cocoa maneuver. You are performing an M-block resection of the distal stomach, bowel duct, duodenum, and head of the pancreas. So know the technical maneuvers needed and what reconstruction will entail. How would you manage the drains? Well, I would check a drain amylase level on postoperative day one and three uh, to guide my drain management with plans to remove the drain prior to discharge. If the output is less than 30 uh, milliliters a day, amylase levels are within normal limits and the patient exhibits no clinical signs of a pancreatic fistula. So on postoperative day five, the patient experiences nausea with vomiting and abdominal pain. He has not urinated in the last 12 hours. He is febrile to 102 degrees and hypotensive with a blood pressure of 95 over 60. Okay. Well, I would uh, immediately make a patient in PO. I would go uh, examine the patient. Uh, I'd want to get a full set of labs to evaluate for bleeding, infection, or any uh, electrolyte derangements. If my drains have not been removed, I'd also check the drain character and volume and send for drain amylase levels. Uh, I would ensure the patient has uh, large bore IV access. I would start IV fluid resuscitation and give him a, a one liter uh, bolus of crystalloid. Um, I'd also want to get an x-ray of his abdomen. His blood pressure improves with the one liter bolus. Uh, he remains febrile. Labs show a leukocytosis of 16,000. His hemoglobin is stable at 13. His drain output was 150 cc's over the last 24 hours and is yellow brown in character. Uh, the amylase level is 5,000. X-ray shows a dilated stomach and dilated loops of small bowel consistent with an ileus. Okay, so at this point, I'd be concerned uh, for a pancreatic leak or fistula. I would insert an NG tube and place it to uh, wall suction, low intermittent. I would continue fluid resuscitation and start broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, I would perform a CT scan of the abdomen and ensure that the drains are uh, in the right location and providing adequate drainage. Be prepared to handle a postoperative complication following a Whipple procedure. This may include an anastomotic leak or fistula as above, delayed gastric emptying or GDA bleeding. Develop a plan to work through these problems safely and systematically. The patient uh, recovers from his pancreatic leak without further intervention and is eventually discharged home. Final pathology demonstrates a 2-centimeter pancreatic adenocarcinoma, margin negative, with 2 out of 15 lymph nodes positive for metastases. Does this patient require anything else? I'd want to discuss uh, the patient at our multidisciplinary tumor board. Uh, once recovered from the surgery, I believe an additional two months of adjuvant chemotherapy would be recommended to complete a total of six months of therapy. Uh, I would plan surveillance every three to six months with interval history and physical exam and monitoring of CA199 levels, as well as the CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis for two years. And then I would space that out to every six to 12 months thereafter. In a patient that undergoes upfront resection, standard of care for treatment of pancreatic adenocarcinoma includes marginagin resection and adjuvant chemotherapy for six months. In this case, the patient received four months of therapy neoadjuvantly, so two additional months of adjuvant therapy would be recommended. Don't forget to have a plan for surveillance monitoring.
Thank you for listening to Behind the Knife Premium Oral Board Review. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.